If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. As you may already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine. And we're offering you the chance to try six issues of Britain's best-selling history magazine for just 9.99. That's a saving of 72% on the shop price. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you can subscribe for just $49.99 for 13 issues, saving 65%. To find out more and for all other countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May 2021. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest episode in our new series on Britain's greatest Prime Ministers. Hello and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important Prime Ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History Magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two Prime Ministers that they believe achieved most during their time in Number 10. Today we'll be hearing from the historian Charlotte Lydia Riley, whose first nomination was Clement Attlee, Labour's post-war leader who presided over some of the most consequential legislation in modern British history. Briefly, could you just explain to people who might not know when Attlee was in charge and what makes him particularly great? So Attlee um, is a really interesting political figure because he comes into uh, power in 1945 and he's elected at the end of the Second World War. 
Um, and then he uh, is prime minister from 1945 until 1950. There's there's another election in in, in, in 1950, and, and they they win again with a much reduced majority, and and he's in power for a short period of time after that. I said he's a, he's sort of this is an interesting path to power because he was actually deputy prime minister during the Second World War, and um, in a very unusual um, process because he's deputy prime minister to Churchill being prime minister, so he as a Labour. Um, He's a, a Labour deputy prime minister with a Conservative prime minister. Um, so he has this slightly unusual trajectory where he kind of works in a coalition government and then he's elected as part of this Labour landslide in 1945, which I think is just interesting to note. Obviously, more recently in political history, we have now experienced coalition government with that kind of setup again. But it's kind of interesting that this that that was his sort of way into being prime minister, I think. And the reason I think he's so interesting is because that 1945 Labour government for a Labour historian, you know, that is the emblematic Labour government that all future Labour governments will be held up to. Uh, the Attlee government is uh, sort of within Labour Party circles. It feels like you can almost never critique the Attlee government. Like it is, it sort of canonically is the greatest ever Labour government. And, and whatever happens after that point will always be compared to Attlee. So I think that's why I find him so interesting and why I think he's, you know, in the running to be, you know, historically one of the great British prime ministers. So we'll get on to some of the reasons why this government is particularly held up as a blueprint for subsequent Labour governments. But I mean, first of all, to what extent was Attlee's victory in 1945 a surprise even to him? To a, to a degree, that victory was a surprise uh, to Attlee and perhaps in a way more of a surprise to Attlee than it was to the wider Labour Party. Um, and I only say that because so many of the accounts of Attlee talk about him as very much a sort of unassuming man. Clearly, the part of this is projection because obviously he is like a very skilled political operator, and I don't think we should, we should. I think there's there's some projection that he's he's quite sort of shy and unassuming, and this this sometimes uh, becomes quite excessive. I think, and we see him as this kind of almost completely hapless figure who gets kind of pushed into the spotlight. But at the same time, I think he, you know, he had Atley had served as, as deputy prime minister under what was in many ways a, a very popular wartime leader of Churchill. So Labour being elected in 1945 in a, in a landslide victory clearly is surprising to a large proportion of, of, of the population um, and, and possibly to him as, as a sort of an overturning of, of the sort of success of Churchill. And there are lots of reasons why Labour wins in 1945, which, which make this an explicable victory. I don't think this is unexplainable and I don't think it was a surprise to everybody. But I think it, it, it may well have been a surprise to Attlee, who, who was himself, I think, possibly quite a cautious political operator. Uh, is it right to say, as I think some people have, that uh, Winston Churchill was seen as a wartime prime minister and now the country is moving into peacetime, people were looking for a different kind of leader? I think that's definitely true. Um, lots of people have pointed to the fact that the Labour Party, both Labour and the Conservatives, had supported the Beveridge Report when it had been released in 1942, which is this kind of plan for the post-war world, but that Labour had said if they were in power, they would have been trying to implement it during the Second World War, and Churchill had been very much framed this as something that would have to happen after war was over. And that's supposedly one of the reasons why, why Labour started to be kind of see, seen as a potential post-war government. Um, I think Churchill is very much associated with this kind of bombastic wartime rhetoric and there are definitely some reasons why people might be willing to support him in that moment but not really want him as a peacetime leader. Um, I do think also, you know, Churchill was probably less popular 
among among the British people than we sometimes assume. Um, and there is, you know, there's footage, for example, of him on the campaign trail for this election being booed by by people he's speaking to and things like this. So I think it, it's not necessarily that he is this kind of overwhelmingly popular wartime leader. I think that he had his critics even in that moment. But um, I definitely think there's a sense that people are like looking for looking for a new future and Labour kind of often frames this as being about the people's peace. You know, you've had the people's war, you've contributed, now you need to be rewarded. And I think people thought the Labour government, a, a Labour government, and at least Labour government was more able to do that for them. Was there a moment or an episode early on in Attlee's life um, that shaped his political um, beliefs? I think there were quite a few. So his his kind of upbringing um, is fairly traditional for a politician of his of his kind of period. He is, you know, educated in an elite education system. He, uh, you know, trains to be a lawyer. He has this kind of what fairly standard kind of kind of background, I think. But he um he goes to work in East London, um, and he um having not really enjoyed law or not really got on with law that well, um, sort of moves into social work. And he has this experience of working in East London and particularly, I think, working with young men in East London and, and is really exposed to inequality in ways that really kind of shape his shape his political identity. And there's a particular story, um, actually, about him talking to some some young men who are off to go and play football and they're having to travel quite a long way to play football because they have no access to kind of green space in East London where they live. Which sounds like quite, you know, a, a sort of a, a small story, but I think it epitomised for Attlee the idea that some people just had lives that were much more difficult and um, and and drearier maybe and without joy, in, and that this was something that politics should seek to try to engage with, that actually the, those sorts of issues were important in politics as well as the kind of what might be seen as the bigger issues. And like a lot of politicians of his of his generation, like a lot of Labour politicians of his generation, he's also a big reader. Um, and, you know, you get this a lot with the actually a lot of those kind of 1945 Labour politicians. When you look at their kind of early history, it's often that they've they've just really been sort of really exposed to lots of ideas and things in, in literature. And I think it's that combination of him being in this this kind of East London space and also reading all of this kind of political theory in that moment, which kind of pushes him to, along this trajectory. One of the questions I've been asking everybody is, uh, what challenges did they inherit? I mean, obviously, he comes to power at an extraordinary moment for the country. Do you think, and this is maybe impossible to answer, do you think his response to the challenges was something that any Labour leader would have done? Or are there things inherent in him as a leader that we can see in how he reacts to them? I think that's really interesting as a question, because you're right that you know, in 1945, Labour has a really clear agenda for what it needs to do because it has, you know, I mean, actually, the country's still at war and it's still at war until August um, um, and, and victory in Japan. But it has this kind of shopping list of things that it needs to achieve almost and, and the creation of the a welfare state. And and I think to some degree, yeah, any any Labour government would have done that. And there's certainly the moment where um, Herbert Morrison, for example, uh, could theoretically have been Labour leader in this moment rather than Attlee. And I'm not sure that Morrison's kind of sort of raft of policies would have been that different to Attlee's. I do think that perhaps Attlee is um, certainly at this period of his politics quite effective at holding his party together, which you wouldn't think you'd need to do after a landslide, um, but I think becomes increasingly something that needs to be done. And and he gets like, he gets less good at it, and this is part, part of the reason I think that explains his kind of fall from power, but he's good at kind of holding together what is often referred to as the broad church of the Labour Party, and I think that possibly means that they're able to kind of work through this list of, 
of things that they want to achieve quite efficiently. We should talk about that list of things they did achieve. I mean, how seismic is something like the creation of the NHS? I mean, we're talking major events in political history here, aren't we? Exactly. And in some ways, it makes it quite it makes it quite easy to argue for the Attlee government and for Attlee as being an important prime minister, right? Because particularly maybe in this moment in British politics today, that that creation of the NHS just looks like such an important moment for British society that it's it's very hard to argue against that being the achievement of, of a very crucial prime minister. I mean, the, the sort of if I if I needed to qualify that, um, you know, this is created as part of a series of post-war reforms, which probably would have been implemented by by most parties had they kind of come into power in 1945. It's bringing together provision that had existed in some form or other in various different ways. So it's we see it as very revolutionary, but you know, very famously, for example, the Attlee government didn't build any new hospitals. Um, so when we think of the creation of the NHS, I think sometimes we could think of that as being maybe not more revolutionary, but maybe more dramatic than it actually was. And it's interesting, I think, to think about the way that it's sort of sold to the people in 1948, because it's often sold to them as you know, it has to be sold to the people. The the literature that you see, the kind of, the, there's pamphlets and things produced by the government and they're explaining to people how it works and they're kind of reassuring them with concerns and things like this. It's, lots of people are clearly very excited about it and the, and, and cl- clearly people really benefit from the creation of the NHS, but it they actually have to kind of win people over in some ways and, and it's quite interesting to see how they're doing that in that moment. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In terms, of, so in terms of that kind of diplomatic international history, I think Attlee has actually a very, a fairly good, a fairly good record. I think the imperial history is is far murkier. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. You mentioned that story about those young people looking for green spaces, which makes me think, are there any aspects of these welfare reforms that you think get overlooked with the focus so much on the NHS? Are there any other areas that you think deserve celebrating? I mean, actually, I think the 1940s is the moment with green spaces. It is actually the moment where the kind of right to roam is brought in and there's more access to the countryside and things like that actually is is something that happens, I think, in this period. I, I mean, I think I think the NHS does tend to overshadow everything. And I think also what's interesting is that people tend to think there's a straight line from the Beveridge report to the NHS. But actually, Beveridge, Beveridge assumes the existence of an NHS, but it doesn't plan it. Like in the Beveridge report, he he he's talking about social insurance. It's a report on social insurance, and he kind of makes an offhand comment comment that something like, "Oh, of course we'll have to have, of course we'll have to have provision of of health services after the Second World War." So there's an extent to which I think, yeah, it has become very synonymous with the, the you know the welfare state is the health service, and we don't think about things like education reform or social work reform or the changes to the old age pension and these sorts of things. Well, you have touched on this uh, in terms of Attlee's ability to appeal to a broad church for his party. Are there any other traits that you think make him a particularly good prime minister? Attlee is actually, um, for someone who's always clocked as being shy, always described as being kind of unassuming, he's a surprisingly effective public speaker, actually. When you see him giving uh, speeches, there's some interesting Pathé news footage and things like this. Um, and a particular moment, actually, when they're the, um, they starting to do kind of filming but the party leaders to talking to camera for really some pathetic films like a kind of predecessor to um uh party political broadcasts and he's a surprisingly good and clear speaker um he's he's quite good at getting his point across he comes across very sympathetically i think and possibly the kind of i think possibly the conservatives underestimated that element of him that they see him as being this quite shy and retiring figure who they're going to be able to sort of destroy in the house of commons and actually he's quite capable of making a, making a strong argument and getting his point across in speeches, which I, which I think is probably quite an important trait. For various reasons, his reputation in terms of the global stage is a bit more checkered. Um, are there particular episodes in this story that you think we should highlight? Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that the welfare state at home goes hand in hand with a, a, a moment of really complicated imperial politics overseas. Um, and actually imperial politics and kind of foreign policy as well. Like the, there's the what are often in, at the time called the sort of three spheres of British influence. And you've got kind of Europe, America and the empire, as well as all the domestic stuff. Clearly, the decolonisation of um, India and the partition of India is a, a really sort of negative moment in British imperial history that leads to an enormous amount of lives lost and a really kind of problematic political legacy in in, in India and Pakistan and East Pakistan. British withdrawal from Palestine, which also happens under Ali's um, watch and possibly uh, not something that you can... It's not something Atlee's completely responsible for, but in the way that he manages it in terms of, for example, the power he gives Bevin to kind of make policy in that region. Um, you know, some of this is kind of Atlee's failings and some of it's his failings... Um, too effectively to delegate or to choose the right people to do these kind of processes. This is also the period of what's been called the second colonial occupation in Africa, um, which is when Britain's starting to, because partly because of the decolonisation in India, 
Britain's starting to kind of refocus its attention on other bits of the empire. And it's a moment of colonial development programs in Africa. And that these have a very mixed legacy. Um, they're not especially effective in actually producing the things that are needed in Britain. So things like the East African Groundlet Scheme, for example, which becomes actually a sort of, it, it becomes a kind of catchphrase for criticising enormous government spending projects that that give you very little get very few results um the east african groundnut skin you know it's mocked in a dan dare cartoon for example it becomes this kind of um really really sort of famous government failure it's colonial development is not necessarily that effective in in producing stuff for britain but also it it's used as a way to sort of try to strengthen british imperial control in african colonies at the end of the second world war because there are concerns that these colonies might start to push towards independence as well um so it has very sort of mixed legacies in in Africa and that and that's done all under all and really under at these at these kind of rule so yeah the imperial legacy is quite complicated and then you've got the kind of anglo-american special relationship in in the 1940s um some of which uh, there's clearly some successes in this in this period but also I think Attlee is um often felt by his including by some of his own cabinet to be far too willing to kind of pacify american demands far too, far too willing to accept junior partner status in the special relationship and that possibly kind of sets the tone for anglo-american relations in the period after the second world war um in a way that hasn't always been very helpful to britain i mean this sounds like a really messy and complicated and problematic sort of international scene do you think we can give at least some credit for how he navigated it? Or are there particularly major, I suppose, mistakes or policies that particularly tarred his legacy to some extent? No, I think I think on an international level, I think certainly on the diplomatic level, when you're talking about Britain with Europe and Britain with America, you know, Attlee is, again, lots of this is done through Ernest Bevan as foreign secretary, and a lot of this is done, you know, in cabinet and things like that. But Attlee is in, in, in power when Britain... Uh, negotiates, for example, receipt of Marshall Plan money, um, the Anglo-American loan at the end of the Second World War, and then the Marshall Plan. Britain's the biggest recipient of Marshall Plan aid, um, and and Marshall Plan aid is very important for getting Britain back on its feet at the end of the Second World War. I think that's clearly a success for the Attlee government. You know, the, the Britain has a really important role in the formation of NATO and and kind of securing British diplomatic power in Europe, and that's all done under Attlee as well. He has quite an important role, obviously, at the peace conferences, including even actually when he's deputy prime minister, he has a he has a kind of role in in these peace conferences and things like this. Is partly why he's able to kind of take on the role so effectively. In terms of, so in terms of that kind of diplomatic international history, I think Attlee has actually a very a fairly good a fairly good record. I think the imperial history is is far murkier and it's not made easier by the fact that the Labour Party itself has quite an ambiguous relationship with empire there are plenty of people within the Labour Party who have spent a lot a lot of time arguing against the existence of imperialism and arguing that imperialism is the highest form of capitalism and that you know workers the world over should unite and that British imperialism is a stain on British history but the there are many people within the Labour Party including I think Attlee who are very willing to to use empire as a way to try to motor domestic growth, you know, to use empire as a way to try and improve the conditions of the British working classes in Britain. Yeah, so the so the sort of empire context is quite difficult for the for the Labour government to deal with anyway. And it's and it's a difficult moment for imperialism because things like the, the independence of India clearly are yeah, hard hard things to navigate. If you could ask Atlee a question, what do you think you'd ask him? I mean, I would actually, I'd be really interested in asking Attlee about the Labour Party after him. So, so sort of, does you know how? 
this is a sort of imaginary alley that's around today, I guess, which is um, how, how does he see things like New Labour? Like, how, how do, what does New Labour look like to a, to a man who became a, a Labour Party socialist in the 1920s? Like, how, how does this trajectory of the Labour Party across the 20th century make sense to, to somebody who, whose socialism is, is framed in a really different context? I think that's one of the things that fascinates me about the politics of this era, is some of the people who were active on the political stage are from a, another time entirely. This is the thing. It's such a bridging period in a way, I suppose, it feels like. Yeah, completely. And and in a way, I think that's why some of the things like the imperial politics and things are really interesting, because you, you have these different sorts of chronologies that over... You know, when we think about political history, we have such a tendency to think about just in terms of, like, the dates of governments. And we don't think about these politicians as being people who were educated and had early political careers under completely different moments, and then have afterlives as well, often, and kind of go on to do other things. But you know, when you think about the 1940s or 1945, we have a tendency to sort of isolate it as 1945 to 1950 or 1951. And rather than thinking, actually, these are politicians who in many ways have really inherited kind of Victorian values. And, and what are they doing with those in the context of the First World War and the interwar period and the Second World War and that sort of thing? Do you think Attlee's story has any lessons for the politics of the 21st century? I mean, I think the focus on holding the Labour Party together is a perennial concern for the Labour Party. Uh, and I think any any Labour Party prime minister who's managed to do that probably does have either lessons or warnings for, for contemporary politicians. I mean, I, and I think there's there's a sort of interesting, the sort of interconnections between foreign policy and domestic policy, I think, are, are sort of are interesting there as well. So so being a being a prime minister who has to be able to see Britain within a global context um, I think that's that's quite interesting for a contemporary politician as well. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tomorrow we've got an episode on the history of slimming clubs. We'd love to know what you think about History Extra. So we're running a survey to ask you what you love about the podcast and what you think we could do better. It should only take five minutes to fill out and you'll be entered into a prize draw for the chance to win one of seven £100 Voucher Express gift cards. The prize draw is open to UK residents only and runs until Sunday the 16th of May. So to have your say, just head to bit.ly forward slash HEPodSurvey where you can also find the full terms and conditions. That's bit.ly slash HEPodSurvey. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.